Well, about a month ago, we started the series on the Apostles' Creed. And, um, and again, we've seen that this, the Creed is, the, you know, it's, it's, it's worth studying because it's the kind of foundational uh, statement of faith of the church that the church has, has affirmed for about 1,800 years. And, and through this series, we're not preaching on the Creed, but we're using it as an outline and then looking at the Bible and seeing how the Bible teaches these things because that's all that it is. It's, it's affirming what the Bible teaches. The first line of the creed is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And, and I promise I'm not going to go through slow through the whole, whole Apostles' Creed, uh, but we've slowed down on this second part of that first line, creator of heavens and earth. The idea of, let's take some time and really look at this issue of, what does it mean that God is a creator? And we, we slow down here because it's an incredibly controversial issue in our time and our culture. It's one that's under attack, and yet it's some, one that I think is of incredible importance because it's at the foundation of everything that the Bible teaches. It's at the foundation of, of all that, what is Christians that we believe. Now, it's under attack because there are many in our culture who claim that, that science tells a different story than the Bible, that science has proven that evolution is how the world came to exist, and that the whole claim of creation, well, that's just a religious claim that's been proven untrue by science. And in this debate between creation and evolution, what we've seen is that we have two very, very different stories, two incredibly sto different stories, not only about the origin and the universe, but both of them make stories that are beyond just science, about what is ultimate truth, about what is true in, in the whole world, how we would see and understand the world around us. Both of them appeal to science, but both of them make claims that go beyond science. They're, they're two different stories that are saying ultimate truth. The first is in creation. We see in Genesis chapter 1, it begins, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light was good. God separated light and darkness, and we continue on through Genesis, and you have this story of God speaking the world into existence, and then God bringing order to the world, bringing his design into the world. Now, the second account isn't of God's creation, but it's of this idea that, that, that the world came by chance. It starts, in the beginning, there was nothing. And from that nothing, there was a singularity that formed, and, and a small spot of nothingness in that nothingness, but that nothingness somehow exploded and created all the matter in the universe. And it was an explosion that not only brought that matter into existence, but brought the laws of nature into existence and, and organized itself into the stars and, and the solar systems and galaxies and planets and ultimately into our planet. And then, and then spontaneously created biological life. And that biological life then evolved to become the complex life that we see in the world around us. Now, most who hold the story of evolution will we'll say, well, you believe in creation. Well, that's religion. You know, we, we, we have science. But what we've seen in the past few weeks is that that's a claim that's incredibly dishonest. Evolution is ultimately based on a philosophy, a, base, a philosophy of materialism. It's the idea or the philosophy that the only thing that does exist, the only thing that can exist, is the material objects in the world, the things that we can see and that we can touch and that we can manipulate. And so it excludes the possibility of the supernatural. It excludes the possibility that there's a cause outside of nature. Now, that's not a scientific statement, 
because there's no evidence that that's the fact. There's no scientific evidence to in any way prove that this is true. It's not science at all. It's actually a philosophical assumption that actually is religious in its nature because it's making a religious claim about where we come from, what is ultimately reality, where we're going. It's, it's actually religion. And so the theory of evolution flows from this philosophy of materialism, and, and it makes all kinds of assumptions um, which cannot be proven to be true. And those that hold evolution then make great leaps of faith that go beyond what can be true, proven true based on their assumptions. Now, we've got to recognize that both creation and evolution will ultimately require faith. Both of them require us to go beyond what we can see, what we can prove. See, but the question is, what is more consistent with what we can prove? See, biblical faith isn't a leap in the dark. It never calls us to be able to shut our eyes and believe in spite of the evidence. It actually calls us to look at the evidence and to believe in a way that is consistent with the evidence, but will go beyond what we can see. And so the question that we've looked at in these two stories is the, the ultimate question is, what story is aligned with the facts of science? So if we're to have a faith that is consistent with logic, is consistent with nature, well, which of these stories is more consistent? Now, I'm not going to go through the whole science again on this, but we've seen in the past few, two, two weeks, just briefly, the evidence of science is far more consistent with the story of creation than it is with the story of evolution. And if you weren't here the past two Sundays, I encourage you to go back and, and hear those messages, and, and, and you'll see so much of that evidence that is laid out. Or come back tonight, we're going to look at it more this evening as well. And, uh, and even in that, over the past few weeks, we, I've quoted from, uh, from scientists who believe in evolution, who in an honest moment will admit that science does not tell the story of evolution. They've admitted that, that although they believe in it, it's not because it's the story that is told by the evidence of science, it's because they start with this presupposition, and therefore, even though evidence of science is against them, they still have to believe it because, because they know that there can be no God. Now, one last quote to kind of make that point from a scientist, just to show you this is not my opinion, but many scientists believe it. It's from a, a man named Louis uh, uh, Bonor, which is a professor at the University of Strasbourg. He said this, evolution is a fairy tale for grown-ups. This theory has helped nothing in the progress of science. It is useless. Now, this was a person that at the time that was struggling and you know, was, was a theist, he believed in God, he's struggling to put these together. But what was interesting is that in making this quote, he was adding his conclusion that it's helped nothing in science, it's useless, but he was quoting another man, uh, Gene Rusted, a famous fresh biologist who was a leader in evolutionary science, who himself had talked about evolution as a fairy tale for grown-ups. And yet this man, right after that statement, basically said, but we know it's true. Even though it's a fairy tale, we know it's true. And no one should be, you know, be, should be considered a scientist that questions it, even though it's a fairy tale. Now you're sitting there saying, how in the world could you say that? Because as an atheist and a materialist who starts with the assumption that there can be no God, and he looks at it and says, the story of science does not conform, or the evidence of science does not conform, con, uh, confirm the science or the story of evolution, it, it denies it. It seems to say it's a fairy tale, but yet we believe it in spite of the evidence because we start and we know there's no God, God's not possible, so therefore that's the only other explanation. My friends, what we've seen is that if you start with the idea that there could be a God or there could not be a God, if you're open-minded, the evidence is incredible.
incredibly heavily weighted on the side of, of creation. Science, nature declares God's glory. It affirms that truth. One of the places that we've seen it is that there, in, 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 throughout, uh, throughout all creation, throughout all nature, there's evidence of design. You know, it's amazing that you'll go to a, science, or a museum and it's purely evolutionary, but they can't, use, they can't describe something without saying designed. They can't talk about these animals. They can't talk about the world without saying the incredible design because it's evident that there's design. And everything from the fine-tuning of the laws of the universe to the, you know, to, to the you know, design of, of various animals to the design complexity of the simple cell that we've seen, there's incredible design. Now, again, now let's just take the laws of science. Science says that you look at what's observable, you look at what's repeatable. And you know what we find in the laws of science? If we really follow science, every time there is design, there is designer. There's no such thing as a design, a complex design, without a designer. It's always the work of a designer. And, and that's true. You know, so that you look at that, you don't find a watch on a beach, and you think, oh man, isn't this amazing, the way this just came together? You know, it, boy, you know, it's, we'd expect, you know, a tornado goes through a junkyard, and out comes a 747. It's amazing. It just is. No, those things are designed. You don't have minis evolve to become SUVs. That doesn't happen. You know, even last week we joked about you could go to Disney World and, you know, you don't walk there and you see, man, those bushes, and it's amazing. Disney is a magical place. Even the bushes grow to look like Minnie and Mickey. No, you know there's design. Design is always the work of a designer. Now, from there, though, I want to transition to where we're going to really kind of go the rest of our time this morning, and that is looking at the implications of this, of living in a designed world. You see, the evidence of science not only clearly shows the evidence of design, pointing to the fact that our world was created and designed by God, but it means that, therefore, our whole world, our system, is the product of design. We live in a designed world, and this has incredible implications. You see, evolution is based on this whole idea that we're the products of random chance. There is no design. And it's not only that there is no design in our biology, but therefore, there's no design in any other aspect of life. There's no design in morality. There's no design in sexuality, no design in family structures like marriage. Or, there's no design in any of that. We're the product of random chance. There's no design purpose for our life. There's no purpose in our existence. There's no design in any aspect of who we are. Everything is by chance. See, but on the other hand, if we're the product of God's design, if creation is true, not only are we biologically designed, but that means that everything about us, everything about our world, including things like morality and sexuality and family, gender, all those things are the product of design. And it's the product of design, therefore it follows that if we want to be, be healthy, then what do we need to do? We have to align ourselves with that design. The fact is, is that, you know, I could, I could take a guitar here and I can say, well, you know, boy, I see a nail, and I go and I try to slam this, this, you know, try to do this, you know, use this as a hammer, and the fact is, I'm like, man, that's a useless hammer. Well, of course it's a useless hammer. It's not designed to be a hammer. It's not going to be effective, and I'm going to destroy it, because if I don't use it according to the design, it's not going to work. My friends, the same thing's true for us. 
For us to be effective, for us to be healthy, we have to live according to the design. And the more that we align ourselves with the way that God has designed us and our world, the healthier we will be, personally and as a culture. And that's why we're spending so much time on this, because this is so important, understanding not only that we are created, but the implications of creation on our worldview. And by our worldview, what I mean is the way that we view all reality. The fact is that if we think that we are the product of evolution, see, we will look at everything as something by chance and something that is evolving, something that we have to change and grow because we can improve. See, but on the other hand, if we really believe in creation, then that becomes a worldview issue, and we should see everything in life as designed. And we shouldn't try to be evolving and improving. We, we realize is that we can't improve beyond our design. What we need to do is constantly come back and say, how do I align myself with the way that I'm built and designed, and the way that my culture is built and designed? See, and that is a, that's something that is true in every aspect See, let me give you just a basic principle that I want you to remember here. If creation is true, then our greatest health and our greatest growth is realized not by evolving to a higher state, but by understanding and aligning ourselves with the way that we were designed. And that's not only, again, true of us, it's true of our morality, it's true of our culture, it's true of family structures, it's true of everything. It will totally, and it should, shape the way that we view ourselves, our world, every aspect of reality. Now, let me try to make this point from the Bible. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1. And I want you to see that in Romans 1, this is exactly what Paul is saying, how essential creation is to our understanding of the world. And if we leave creation and God's design, then we're going to, everything else is going to fall away. Romans chapter 1, let me start in verse 18. For the wrath of God was revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men uh, by their un unrighteousness that, surpasses, or, or, su that suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And how has God shown it? His, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And so basically he's saying God has revealed himself through nature, through creation. And so, so that all of us should see that, and if we see that, it helps us to understand something about God's nature, something about the truth. Now, what happens if we begin to walk away from the centrality of creation, if we forget it? Look what it says. For although they knew, uh, they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish, uh, in their foolish hearts they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, hear what you see. What happened? They exchanged the immortal God, and they started to put other things in the place of God instead of God creator. And what happens in that? We become futile in our thinking. We become foolish. Our hearts become darkened. We, we begin to not be able to understand what is true. And once we deny the creator... What happens is that in time, then, we also deny the designer and the fact that we are designed. 
And once we denied that design, we begun to begin to redefine every aspect of our world. Looks what it continues on. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the Creator, or creature rather than the Creator, who is to be blessed forever. So God gives us up morally. Why? Because we exchanged the truth of a Creator. We walk away from the truth of creation. And then what is the impact? For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and, and, and they were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameful acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And basically what it's saying is once we walk away from design, you see then issues like sexuality. And specifically, I want you to notice, where does he say? Specifically, sexuality and family. We start to move away from the idea of design. And, and God said, okay, well, this is the way that family is supposed to work. And one man, one woman, marriage, sex is to be in context of that marriage. But once we're not designed, we can make whatever rules we want. It's no longer there's a right and a wrong that we should align ourselves to to be healthy. No, we can, there is no design. We can evolve and become healthier than God's design. And it continues, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, uh, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they, knew, uh, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And you see what it's saying? Once we walk away from the whole idea of God's design, you see, morality falls apart. Family structures falls apart. Sexuality falls apart. Because we're no longer trying to say, okay, here's what God has designed us for. Here's the world that, that we're to be healthy in. No, no, we're no longer designed. We can make up our own design. We can e evolve to healthier places. Now, do you see how that's playing out in our culture? Do you see how relevant this issue is? Why it's so important? Do you see how, as we look at in our culture and all these controversial issues that our culture is struggling with, see, they're rooted in this issue of, of creation. And you have people coming to very, very different conclusions on a bunch of very important issues and you know what? I shouldn't be surprised that they're coming to those conclusions. If they really believe in evolution, if they really believe there's no design in, in the world around us, you see then those conclusions that, that we're not designed, but we're evolving, that, that should be understandable. Okay, so what are some of the areas? Let's look at some of these. So let's take the issue of, of morality. Okay, how do we define right and wrong? Now, you've got to realize that what we believe about where we came from totally changes that whole question. If we are the, just the product of unguided evolutionary forces, or if we were designed by an all-powerful, uh, divine, and loving God, it will totally change. Whatever worldview you have will totally change your understanding of morality. You see, if you believe in evolution, you have to ask the question, why is there right and wrong? What is right or wrong? What is the basis of saying that anything is right or wrong. 
You see, again, when we talk about evolution and, and creation, it's not a, just a question of our biology, it's a design of society and the morality around us. You know, really what it's saying is there's something greater than us. If we believe in creation, we believe there is a creator God who created us and who created morality and created moral structure and has given that to us that we're to align ourselves with. If we believe in evolution, there is nothing greater than us. There is no divine being that would define anything as being uh, right or wrong. There's nothing outside of natural causes. And since we're the most evolved species in the world, when, well, we're the ones that define right or wrong. And not only in that, but because we believe we're evolving, therefore our concepts of morality should constantly be evolving. Whatever, whatever people agree with now, well, that's the higher degree of morality because, because it's, we're evolving. Now, in that though, how can you say that there's any right or wrong? How can you say that there's anything as moral absolute? You know, think about that. We live in a world of moral re relativity, changing morality, you know, especially in issues of sexuality. But you know, it's interesting, even in that, pretty much everybody believes that there are some things that are wrong. Pretty much everybody believes that murder is wrong. Pretty much everybody believes, you know, rape is wrong. Well, let me ask you from an evolutionary standpoint, why? Why is murder wrong? Why is rape wrong? You know, when you look at the, the morality of evolution, what is it? The, the survival of the fittest. So again, Nazi Germany, was, that, was, that was Darwinism gone haywire. That was saying, okay, we have the fittest group of people and we can go kill the unfit people. You know, we're gonna go kill all the handicapped people. We're gonna all, you know, why? Because it's survival of the fittest and they're taking away resources and we're gonna go kill the Jews because we see them as a lesser race. And what you've got to realize is that if you're speaking purely from an evolutionary standpoint, why is what they're saying wrong? Even rape. I mean, the fact, if I'm strong and if I can rape somebody and I can reproduce, then why is that wrong? And the problem is, from an evolutionary standpoint, there is no answer. There's no answer. And people will try to argue against God and say, well, look at the problem of evil. If God, is, if God is good, then why does he allow evil? My friends, that question itself proves God. Because the moment that you say that anything is evil, there is no evil if there is no God. If you know that things are evil, then the fact is that the only way that there's evil is there's a God that defines good and bad. If there's no God, there's no such thing as evil. See, we live in a world that, lives, that talks about the changing morality and, and, you know, and we need to evolve, but what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that God created and designed morality into our structure. In Proverbs chapter eight, it talks about wisdom and, and, and God personifies wisdom. Wisdom calls out in the streets and is trying to get us to listen to it. And look at what wisdom says in verse 22 of Proverbs chapter eight. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work the first act of, of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth and there were no uh, springs abounding with water. So here you have wisdom saying, before God created anything else, I was there. And God wove me literally into existence, continues on. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, before he had made the earth with its fields or the, uh, or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle around the face of the deep, you know, uh, you know I, I was there. And then he con continues on in verse 30. 
Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Now, here's what it's basically saying. You see, God's moral law, it isn't like God just, you know, when, you know, you know, God had, God had Ten Commandments, and he said, okay, now let, you know, let me think. I just need to make up some rules for these people. And adultery, uh, I'll call it wrong. You know, stealing, I'll call it wrong. You know, it's, it isn't, it, you know, a lot of times people only think that God made up these you know, rules. No, that's not at all the case. God's moral truth is something that he literally wove into creation. That he, when he created, it was truth that he literally spoke into creation. And in doing so, it doesn't just describe what's right and wrong, but it literally describes what's true and how life works. And saying, saying like adultery, God made us to be committed in marriage. And if we're committed in that marriage, we're going to be healthier people and we're going to have happier, you know, be happier and we're going to have healthier families. And, and if we don't do that, you know what? You're going to become unhealthy. Your family's going to be broken. There's going to be consequences of that. It's not just a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of what's true. And because it's what's true, it's what works. Because the more that we align ourselves with design, with the way that we're designed and what's true, the more we align ourselves with that, the better life works. You see, we understand that when it comes to certain other laws. Let's take gravity. Again, you understand the law of gravity is always true. And, you know, you could deny the law of gravity. You could go up there and, you know, go to the terminal tower, and you can jump off the terminal tower, and you can say, I think I can fly. I don't, gravity doesn't apply to me. But you know what? It does. And you'll face the consequences of denying the law of gravity. It will work, and you will fall, and you will be killed. It, you know, it's a bad idea. And we understand that. That's physical laws. But what we have to realize is that the spiritual laws are just as true and are woven into the culture, into the world in the same way that the physical laws are. And in the same way, if we deny God's spiritual laws and if we think his moral laws, I can do whatever I want and there's no consequences. The fact is, it's true and it will always work. And if we align ourselves with that truth, there will be blessings. If we deny that truth, there will be negative consequences. And it's not that God's out to get us and God's out to punish us because we disobeyed him. It's, no, it's, it's, it's just like, you know, God isn't out to get you if you jump off the, you know, a terminal tower. You're just denying the laws of the way that he has built the world to work. It's designed. And the more that we align ourselves with God's design, the better life will work. The more we get out of line with God's design, the more broken we will be personally and culturally. Now, another part of that design, because it impacts the second question, of how, how do we understand not only uh, morality, but how about humanity? What does it mean that we are created, we are designed? You see, because what we're going to find is that what we believe about creation and evolution is going to totally change our understanding of what it means to be human and the basis for individual value and human rights. Evolution teaches that human beings are just the result of natural causes. In our evolutionary in the past, we started out as uh, basically slime. That's where we started. We're lucky slime. And through luck and force of nature, we evolved into our present state. That's where, you know, from one step to another to another. And the primary truth that has guided us through this process is the survival of the fittest, where the weak went out at the expense, or the strong went out at the expense of the weak. 
Now, let me ask you, what does this teach about the value of human life? In this system, what is the source of human rights? Why do you have human rights? If a person believes in evolution where, um, you know, where the strong evolve at the survival of the fittest over the weak, then what is the motivation for caring for the weak or the sick or the elderly? There isn't any. And that's what you see now in our time and our culture, you know, things not only like abortion, but, you know, we're going to, you know, we're going to abort and celebrate, you know, we're going to get rid of, you know, these diseases. We're going to get rid of, you know, or certain things because we can see it prenatal in the womb and we're going to destroy that person because, you know, because, because they're not perfect, because they're handicapped, because they basically have no value. Or you see in Europe where you have this push towards euthanasia, where it's at first, well, you need to have the choice to die, but over time, the choice to die becomes the responsibility to die, and you have more and more people that are basically being put to death by other people deciding that, you know, that they've outlived their useful existence and they cost too much money, because there is no innate value in humanity. Your value is what you produce. See, you've got to ask, what is the basis of human worth and human rights? Why does a human life have value? Why are we more valuable than a cow or a dog or a bug? What makes us more valuable? And, and are there any inherent, inherent rights? From the perspective of evolution, when we look at that, if we're no different than, you know, basically all we are different than a bug or a cow is that we just have evolved more. Our basic being is from the same place. We have no innate rights. There is, no, there is no being above us that says that we have value. And so rights are things that we have to fight for, and whatever group is in power can choose to give or take away rights. And we think about even things about abortion, and we can get in arguments about abortion, and it's, and it's you know, life, and it is scientifically, there's no question. But you have people that will argue, yeah, I know it's a life, but still I believe in abortion. Why? Because from an evolutionary standpoint, an unborn baby is really no different than a bug. And I don't mean to be crass by that, but that's true. Both are, are underdeveloped lives. A bug is undeveloped in evolutionary sense. An unborn child is undeveloped physically and developmentally. Both are a clump of cells that are undeveloped that are not quite the value of the developed human. But on the other hand, if you look at creation, it totally changes things. Why? Because what does the story of creation say? That we were created. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish, over the sea, over the birds and heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. So God made us in his image and he gave us a place of prominence in our culture, not that we you know, uh, you know, abuse the culture. We're given a responsibility to care for it. But we're vastly different. We're called to have dominion over the fish and over the animals, over, the, over all of nature. Why? Because God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created him. We're created in God's image. Each person has an in, incredible inborn value as an image bearer of God. From the time that a you know, baby is, is unborn and still undeveloped physically, but yet it has a soul and therefore it has great value. To one who is born who has handicaps, who maybe can't you know, uh, uh, contribute to the culture, they have great value because there is a soul. My friends, it's only, it's only a creation perspective that destroys things like racism and prejudice. 
Because an evolutionary standpoint, you could sit there and one group feels like I'm more superior than other, and and you see that even going out now. It's well, we're arguing against racism. Well, it's against white versus black racism, but blacks are allowed to be you know prejudiced against whites, and 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 it's it's like crazy, because it's all a question of everyone's fighting for mastery. Everybody's fighting for it because it's the survival of the fittest. But no, in in creation, we're all image bearers of God. And so, whatever race, whatever background, whether a person is handicapped, whatever, whatever, the fact is, is that we treat them with incredible value. It's not based on their performance. It's not based on their wealth. It's not based on what they can give to the culture, what they can give to us. The value is based on the fact that they are image bearers and the, the Almighty God. You know, I think even I just wanted to mention an area of our ministry that I think is really important, along with that. And that's we have a special needs ministry. Not a lot of people know about that, and it's a it's a really important area of ministry for a church to have. And uh, you know the fact is is that in our culture, again, people especially there's no intrinsic value in the church. There should be. And you know what's unfortunate is a lot of times in a church we have people with special needs, and because it's so difficult to care for these people, they come in and it's like, well, we don't have anything for you. The church is the least often supportive environment for a family or for children with special needs, and we should be the most supportive. And I'm thankful for people that have started and that are carrying that special needs ministry on. And I and I want to encourage you. There's information on the front of the bullets and there on the, on the inside, on the, right on the top, about our special needs ministry. It's a special a, a special classroom that meets during the second service. We need people to serve in there, and it's kind of a thankless job. You know, it's you know we've got a couple kids there, and they're highly need. You know, there's a special need, but it's a service toward the kids. It's a service toward their family, and it's something that is an expression of what it means to be a follower of Christ, who believes in the fact that we are all created in God's image. And so, I'd, I'd incru- we're praying that that God would raise up people that say, "Okay, I'm willing to be a part of that." You might think, "I don't know what to do." Well, we'll call Deborah and ask. She'll just help you. Come and come and observe. Come and try it. Be a helper. Uh, we do need people that are be involved in that, and that is, we do it because it's what we believe. Well, see, this deals not only with our question of morality, our question of of, uh, of human rights. It, it, we can get really controversial. Even our question of gender. You talk about big issues in our day, the whole transgender, and we can change genders. And okay, well, let's understand this perspective, this really controversial issue from the standpoint of this question of. Evolution or creation? You see, what is the source of gender? What is its design? See, from an evolutionary perspective, what we look at is that, according to evolution, everything is a result of chance. And the whole idea of gender is it's just chance mutations uh, driven by biological necessity of reproduction. So there's no design; it's chance. And, and evolution is, is shaped to meet the needs of reproduction at that time. So that as our world changes, and as we now have a full population in the world, well, the theory is now well, evolution is changing. So with that time, our concept of gender is changing, because you know we don't need as many babies. We don't need that, and and not only that, but in that design, we, you know, if in that it's if we're by chance, we shouldn't be surprised that you know that by chance the wirings get you know. So if you get external male parts and you get internal female wiring, or vice versa. We shouldn't be designed, you know, surprised by that because there is no design. It's all by chance. It's just luck of the draw.、Um, now, 
if you understand that, you understand this recent push to transgender, because it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint. I mean, sometimes you sit there and say, how can people be thinking this? Where, you know, the thing is, is if you believe in a consistent evolutionary standpoint, it's logical, it makes sense. But on the other hand, if you believe in the Bible, we realize that the whole argument is based on a fallacy, it's based on a lie. And we should be gracious to those that, that, that see that, that argue that, that struggle with it. But at the same time, we shouldn't give in to the argument because it's based on a lie. And it's getting out of line with design, and the more out of line with God's design that we become, and as an individual and a culture, the less healthy we become. What does the story of God's word say? Is that we're designed by God. God doesn't make mistakes. Look what it says in Psalm 119. For you were formed by, uh, for, you, for you, speaking of God, you formed my in, inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. See, in the very beginning, God made us the way, even while we were still developed as an as a, as a, as a ba- unborn baby in the mother's womb. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, See, God knows everything. He knows and knitted in me the inner parts, the outward parts, the, the, you know, my soul, my, my feelings, my frame. He, all, he knew all of that. He designed it. And we were designed just the way that God intended. God didn't mess up. It isn't that God you know, put together, oh, man, I slipped up. I, I met that inward male that was a part. I got a male part and a female part mixed up. And No, God doesn't do that. See, what we've got to realize is that, you no, know, God calls us to understand that design. And again, I want to be gracious, and, and I'm not trying to be judgmental with people that will struggle with this, but what we've got to realize is that if you had somebody that came in and they thought that they, something was true that was out of reality, you know, if they really thought that they were Superman or George Washington, you know, we wouldn't say, well, let's be loving to them and let them live that world and try to create that world where, where we make that real for them. That's not loving. That's unloving. Loving is to help them bring them to reality. But somehow when we have people that are, that are male, that God created male, we say, well, the loving thing is to, well, let's pretend that they're all female. Let's make that their reality. My friends, that's That's unloving. So no, in the very beginning, what does it say? God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. There is a difference of male and female. And that's design. And if we understand creation and God's design, it will totally answer the questions that our culture is struggling with. One, one more I'm going to deal with real quickly, and that is marriage and sex. What is its source and its purpose? Again, we have, you know, this whole thing about, you know, marriage and, well, okay, you know, can we have homosexual marriage and men and women and, and, and sex? And is it just in marriage or is it outside of marriage? And, and our culture is totally confused about all these things. And again, what does God say? If, what you've got to understand is culturally, if we're product of evolution, then even in the, uh, the Supreme Court decision legalizing homosexual marriage, the Supreme Court justice talked about evolution. We must evolve. He appealed to evolution as a justification for legalizing homosexuality. It makes sense if you believe in evolution, because we're evolving to better, higher forms. But my friends, if we are created, if we are designed, then we are healthiest when we align ourselves with God's design. And that means that God has made male and female, and he calls the two to come together and become one flesh in the context of marriage but it's a man and a woman who are called to be married. Marriage is designed, and that is, that's God's design. 
And anything outside of that is breaking away from God's design. And, and sex is designed to be within that commitment of a lifetime commitment of a man and a woman within marriage. And the more that we get outside of that design, the more broken that we become. Now, I want to acknowledge that, you know, oftentimes when we can talk about controversial issues like this, it can be perceived, you know, that, that we're just condemning people that disagree with the church or that choose these sinful lifestyles. But I want to be clear, that's not at all what I'm saying. Part of what I want to communicate is that one of the implications of this idea of creation, that God created the world, is that, that God designed the world, and every aspect of our world is a product of that design. And if indeed we were created, you see, it's not then a matter of my opinion or your opinion about this moral question or about gender or about this or that. It's a question of design. And what I believe and what you believe is totally irrelevant. It's a question of what's real, what's true. And the more that we align ourselves with true, what's true, the healthier we will be. And if you're living out God, God's design, I'm not trying to condemn you for that. I'm just trying to warn you and say that, again, if you get out God's side, that's design, you're going to become unhealthy. And it's, it's pointing out the truth and inviting you to become the person that God wants you to be. But there's even a bigger message. And it's the message of understanding the gospel and how it works with this whole question of creation and the fall. And, and uh, the fact is that God created a perfect world, a perfect design, but the perfect design didn't include sin. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world and they brought brokenness. The fact is, at that point, all of us became broken. Because the most central part of that design is that we would have a relationship with God that that would be at the core of our being. And when we sinned, that relationship with God was broken. And every aspect of the design of our world is broken along with it. But the message of the gospel is that God didn't abandon us to our brokenness. He didn't say, well, you rejected me, and so, you know, live with it. No, the message of the gospel is that, no, he speaks truth, and he invites us to the truth. And ultimately, in that truth, he says, yeah, you're broken. But the gospel is a story of me pursuing you to bring healing. You see, the message of the gospel is that God didn't leave us into the brokenness of the world, but he himself literally came into the broken world. That Jesus Christ came into that brokenness. And that he literally then took brokenness upon himself, both sin and then the consequences of sin, death. And he died on the cross for our sins so that our sins could be forgiven. So that if we realize that, God, I'm created for you. God, I'm broken. There, there isn't like some of us that are broken and some of us that aren't. We're all broken. The question is, do we acknowledge that we're broken and say, God, I agree with you, I'm broken, and I need to be forgiven through Jesus Christ. I ask you to forgive me. I need this relationship with you. I need you to, to become the Lord and King of my life. I submit to you as my God and my designer, not who wants control, who wants to control me, but wants me to live according to the wisdom of your design. God, I need this relationship with you because only then will I become whole. My friends, I hope and pray that as we look at these things, that they help us to not only understand what's true, but they also help us understand God's call of grace to each one of us. No matter where we're at, no matter where our life may be broken. See, we don't speak of those areas of brokenness in, in a spirit of condemnation, but a spirit of invitation and of grace. And the question is, will you come to his grace? Will you trust in him for your you know, for your forgiveness, or for those who have, will you come to him and will you surrender and say, God, I've been living out of line with this and, and I need to surrender and I need to live in a line because, because it isn't working. 
And God isn't condemning us. He's inviting us to surrender to him so that we can find the life that he designed for us to have with him at the center. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.